sticking a sharp instrument like a knife or a sword or hitting somebody with a machete into somebody's body, that is a, a lethal act. If that victim survives it, that is no thanks to you. you. You haven't gone and studied anatomy and decided to avoid all the vital structures that you could harm that will kill the person. So you have to recognise that the act itself is a lethal one and, the, and the, what separates a killer or a murderer from somebody that has committed a common assault can often be a matter of a few millimetres. Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Rudy Crawford, a former surgeon at Glasgow Royal Infirmary. After researching my interview with ex-gang member Sheldon Thomas, I became aware of the history of knife crime in Scotland, statistically a far greater problem than in London. In the 90s and early 2000s, Scotland was in the midst of a knife crime epidemic. It had become the most dangerous country in the developed world and the murder capital of Europe. However, in 2005, to combat the growing issue, Strathclyde Police put together the Violence Reduction Unit, which adopted a public health approach to violent behaviour. This was an incredibly effective move, and in the decade that followed, recorded incidents of handling an offensive weapon dropped by 69%. I wanted to find out more about this, so I headed up to Scotland and recorded two interviews. The first of which is with Rudy, where at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, he saw firsthand the range of injuries, the unnecessary loss of life, and the long-term impact on victims, perpetrators, and families. We discussed the prevalence of knife crime in Scotland, the treatment of knife and gun injuries, and why it was important to consider knife crime as a public health issue. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media, at Peter McCormack, and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Travelling up to Glasgow isn't such a stretch. I've been to yes. Japan and okay. places for interviews, but you get two things. You get much better audio yes. because you're not worried about the guest and their audio mm. facilities and yes. where they've got a microphone. Sure. But you have five minutes beforehand together. Yeah. So like we've just had, sure. like you can immediately get a feel for each other. Yeah. But also you don't interrupt each other so much because you have the full yes. body language. Of course, I, ab- absolutely, yes, indeed. Uh, and to go back to what I was saying about your first trip to Scotland, I would strongly recommend you come and visit Scotland. It's uh, an absolutely wonderful and unique country, mm-hmm. and we've got spectacular 
scenery and countryside that's quite diverse depending on where you are in Scotland, particularly yep. the West Highlands and the islands, and but also the East Coast. You're very different up in the north, but, but you know, fascinating just the same. And the nature and wildlife, you know, absolutely. I'm fanatical about encouraging people to come to Scotland, including Glasgow, because uh -huh. Glasgow's had bad press for many, many years. And a lot of people come to Edinburgh and visit Edinburgh. And Edinburgh is beautiful and it's lovely, but they're not as friendly there as, <laughs> as we are in Glasgow. You know, there is a, there is a difference between East, East and West. And we have a friendly rivalry, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, one of the things I will do is I'll, I want to come back but bring my children. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fantastic place, weather, weather permitting, but even in bad weather, there's some stunning scenery and things, as long as you dress appropriately for the weather. So it's a fantastic place. Well, my dad lives in the west of Ireland, so I'm used to the bad weather. Oh, right, right uh, absolutely. And uh, funnily enough, the, the landscapes in Ireland, uh, a lot of it's very similar to here as well. I think it's more dramatic here. It is more dramatic. It's because we were originally part of... Uh, the, the the North American plate, you know, we were at one point connected to North America. In fact, we were on the equator, uh, uh, Scotland, you know, 500 million years ago or thereabouts, and, and Scotland was on the equator, and, and then as the tectonic plates began to break up and migrate, you know, we were part of the North American plate, so like Canada, right. Nova Scotia area, and then eventually things migrated, and then England was part of the European plate, you know, so the south of England's much more like France or Europe and things like that, and then the two kind of gradually migrated and came together. And so Scotland is totally different, you know, in terms of geology and topography uh, to England. Uh, England is lovely in lots of ways too, but... It's kind of boring, England, though. Yeah, just, I didn't want to no, say that. No, it is. I mean... The, yeah, it's, it's quaint. Just... I'd describe it as quaint, you know, but, but Scotland's wild, it's rugged. Yeah. And, and it's got some of the oldest rocks in the world, you know, the Lewisian gneiss, which is several billion years old. And the geology in Scotland, I mean, a lot of our modern understanding of geology was as a result of Scots scientists or, or people who were interested in geology and studying the geology of Scotland, people like Lyle and others... And, you know, and, and it's fascinating. And some beautiful islands. Fantastic islands, absolutely. And very, very different uh, depending on where you go. Uh, and I have been in a few of the islands, you know, cause, you know for, for photography and things like that. And it's, it's wonderful. So it's a beautiful country. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as we were talking downstairs when we were, you know, grabbing a coffee, it's, you know, tough people. Oh, yes. Very, very tough, very hardy people. And, you know... It's interesting that, that, that we seem to make the best soldiers in the world, for example, you know, fighting mm -hmm. men. And, the, you know, the British government has made use of that over many centuries. Uh, you know, the SES was founded by a Scotsman and the training of the SES was originally based in Scotland. Right. I didn't know that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they trained up in the Highlands and because very rugged, it's very tough. So, so this is where the SES and commandos came from as well. Yeah, because I was talking to John about this yesterday. I, I won't try and pronounce his surname. You'll do a better Carnican. job. Carnican. Carnican, that's it. <laughs> so I was talking about it to him yesterday, and also it's a very patriotic country. I mean, every Absolutely Scotsman, patriotic, yes. Every, oh, yes. Every, the, wor the worst thing you can 
say to a Scotsman is, is, is to mistake him for an Englishman. Yes. It's not that we don't like the English, we do like the English, but, but we are a very proud nation and a separate nation. Not all and of you like the English, come on. No, not, well, <laughs> I, I would call it a friendly rivalry as well. We have our, we have our differences, but, but we're not racist. At least I don't think we're racist. I wouldn't want it to go to that extent, but we're very proud of our own nation and our, our, our nationality and it needs to be recognised and we hate it when we go to... Uh, you know, America, for example, and Americans say, well, you know, what part of England are you from? Or what part <laughs> of England is Scotland? And, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, well, that was why I was surprised that the devolution wasn't a landslide. Yeah, well, we have a lot of, you know, uh, patriotism. But if you uh, if you remember the independent referendum, one of the one of the things that really swung it in Scotland for voting to stay with the UK was when Gordon Brown came to Scotland and argued very strongly that if you want to stay in the EU, you have to vote for not not for independence mm-hmm. because you know if you if you vote for independence, you will have to leave the EU, and and that swung it for a lot of people. I mean the the you know the, I, I can't remember what it was something like fifty five percent forty five percent you fifty five percent in favor of independence and forty five percent in favor of remain, but the government had set the threshold you know there had to be a critical mass mm-hmm. uh, like I can't remember what it was, but it was sixty percent or whatever they had you know they, they specified the turnout and the and, and the percentage, there had to be a substantial number of people wanting independence. It wasn't just a pure 50-50 split. Which they didn't do for which, Brexit. Which they didn't do for Brexit, yeah. which really pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> it really pisses me off. Yeah. Uh, David Cameron really cocked that one up, but I don't want to use bad language. Well, no, um, don't worry, people know me for having uh, uh, yes, a, I have a, heard a rotten a, mouth. I have heard a few words, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, So, but one of the things that then surprises me is such a patriotic country, you yes. know, and I was saying this to John yesterday, you know, when the Scots qualify for a World Cup or the Euros, the oh, nation yeah. comes together, you're all patriotic. Yes. Then very at the same so. time, and then I find it very confusing that also there are these hard lines where people just want to hurt each other and they just want to kill each other or, or, or with all this violence. Like, and I know we'll get into it and alcohol is part of it, but I, it just surprises me. Yeah, I, I, there is a dichotomy there, that's for sure. A, 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 Scots are very hard and very tough, and 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 have, they have a lot of, you know, hard, bitter experience going back over centuries, you know, and uh, therefore you can have, you can have divided loyalties. It's not uncommon for people to have inconsistent views or attitudes or behaviours, you know. But if you look in the wars, for example, the Scots are often noted to be the first troops to be sent in, or you know, leading the charge. You know, in the battlefield and all. Is that because you're the toughest, or was sacrificing you? I, th- I think it's a bit of both. <laughs> I, th- I think, I think, I think the English, you know, I've, you know, have no hesitation in sending in the Scots. A, they, they have a reputation, and B, uh, you know, they're expendable as far as the British establishment are concerned, by and large. A lot know. more tough guys we can recruit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at them, in, you know, like in the fall of Singapore during the Second World War and things like that, you know, they, they feature very strongly in all these kind of things. And as I said, they started off, you know, uh, the SAS was was based in Scotsman and, uh, you know, and... and uh, uh, and, and in fact, you know, so in some ways, it was Scottish aristocracy and... The uh, and, and you've got Lord Lovett and the Chindits and all that kind of thing. So, 
there, there is a historic record there, you know, in the clans, uh, you know, the, they had a, re a formidable reputation. There, you know, there's a lot of romanticism about it, but, but there was a lot of hard, difficult fighting and, and also fighting between themselves. And, you know, the, the, the Scottish history, uh, and I'm not a historian, but the Scottish history is very, very murky going back to the days of... Robert the Bruce and mm -hmm. things like that. You know, the Scottish nobles, a lot of the Scottish nobles, well, they were basically bribed by the English to to betray, you know, the the, the Scots in, in their battles for an independent Scotland and, you know, their own kingdom. And and, and so, so it goes back a long, long way. But we yeah. still have that patriotism and, and proud of our, our nation. But we're also very outward-looking, you know, because we're very pro-European by and large. So it's not just a narrow, uh, insular, patriotic, you know, me first type thing. Uh, so, and and the, these things can coexist and yeah. it's getting the balance. So the nearest school to where I grew up was called Robert Bruce. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. my sister went there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, did you, are you from Glasgow originally? Yes, I, I I was born and brought up in Glasgow in the west of Scotland. Okay. And, uh, yes. So uh, we're here to talk, you know, primarily about yeah. cr knife crime and you know your work, and we'll get into the detail of why I wanted to speak to you. But is Glasgow very different from the rest of Scotland? Is it is is a lot of the crime and and knife crime and violence? Is it focused on? Is there like a? Is it focused there, on Glasgow? Well, there are divides in Scotland, both geographically and socially. And you you can divide Scotland into three regions, basically. Mm -hmm. You've got the Highlands, the Central Belt, and then the Southern Uplands or the Lowlands. And the, the majority of the population live within a relatively narrow strip in the mm -hmm. middle of Scotland, across Scotland, in the Central Belt, you know, more than two million people. So that's where the most urban populations are located. Uh, if, you, if the further north you go, the sparser the population, and the same in the rural southern parts of Scotland, uh, and, and that has influences on you know the environment. And uh, again, a lot of it is historical. There are divides between the east and the west, between Glasgow and Edinburgh, and if you look at say Glasgow. There historically there has been far greater problems with violence in general and knife crime in particular with Glasgow in the west of Scotland compared to the east coast for example uh, and a lot of that was due to wealth or the lack of it due to extreme poverty to deprivation to violence Glasgow was the second city of the empire uh, as it was known in I mean the British Empire in mm -hmm. its widest sense it was hugely industrial heavy industry because people migrated you know in the times of the industrial Re revolution migrated into Glasgow in the west but they lived in absolutely horrific overcrowded conditions slum conditions with with the worst poverty in Britain and uh, you know very high disease rates and including infectious diseases like cholera, typhoid and massive death rates. You know I'm going back to eighteenth uh, nineteenth century, uh -huh. but nineteenth century in particular, and and even into the twentieth century. You know, you know the. the there was a shipbuilding, there were heavy industries and steel industries, uh, but along with that, glaring poverty. And even today, you know, the, if you if you look at and certainly throughout my working career, the three most deprived parliamentary constituencies in the UK 
were all in Glasgow. Uh, right, and, okay. and, and within the catchment area of my hospital. Right, uh, okay. so, so these are the deep-rooted social factors that contribute to the, the, the incidence and prevalence of violence, for example, and crime, including organised crime, and differences between the East and the West as well as the North and the South, and as well as elsewhere in the UK. And I know there's huge poverty in areas in England, and there are lots of similarities, but uh, our problems were the, the, the lack of, uh, or the extent of the severe deprivation and poverty. And of course, over the years, we've had waves of immigration who, you know, a, a, you know different groups tend to move in and, and start off in the, the most poverty-stricken areas uh, with the associated problems and then as they move up the social scale over over the years uh, they become better off, move elsewhere and the other groups move in. And that's why if you look back in it, say, places like the Gorbals for example mm -hmm. uh, tended to be the most deprived areas and people would move into you know the Gorbals and and there were huge problems there, but it, it was throughout the city, um, and and it's also and, and that happens in other places as well. So so it's why if you look at cities, for example, the east end of cities tend to be uh, poorer and and worse off. And and I have heard it. I don't know if it's true or not, but but they often see part of the reason for that westward type of movement as people improve compared to the east is also to do with the prevailing winds. Oh, right, uh, okay. You know, because the winds tend to you know, blow all the pollution and, and all the horrible smells, you know, towards the east of, of the country in Britain generally. Uh, Interesting. You know, so whether there's truth in that or not, I don't know. But, but that seems to be how cities develop. And you have to look at these things on a population basis. And... So in more modern times now, the there is that higher prevalence and high density of crime and, and violence here, but also drugs and suicide rates. Yes, uh, we have uh, deep-seated problems with violence, with crime, with alcohol, with drugs, and uh, that, that go back a long way. And I don't just mean Glasgow. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't want to single out Glasgow or the rest of Scotland. But, but, but the incidence and prevalence of these things have tended to be higher here. Well, they have been higher here uh, than uh, elsewhere. But elsewhere in Scotland and in the UK have had similar problems. Well, the but, patterns are similar, but the, the nuances are different. Oh, very, very much so. The... I don't want to paint Glasgow as, as, as a bad, you know, place because it's not. In more recent times, you know, the, the violent crime, the incidence and prevalence of violent crime has gone down. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is why I'm here. Yes, uh, over over a number of years. And uh, however, what's interesting to me is, you know, it went down to a 44-year low. And uh, however... What I found interesting was the fact that this wasn't just in Scotland. It was a, a, a more general phenomenon in the Western world, which suggested to me that whilst there may be local factors that contributed to that, there may be other wider factors. So it wasn't just in Glasgow that the violent crime figures went down. It, it went down across the UK, it went down in America and uh, so there are wider factors that implicate uh, that, that are involved in that. And I, 
you know, used to joke when I was giving you know talks on the subject that I, I put it down to a combination of online gaming uh, and internet porn, you know, <laughs> because people I because I, people were spending really it was a, 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 a rather flippant way of saying. That, that maybe social media has influenced a lot of this because a lot more people spend more time nowadays rather than out in the streets getting into fights, but being at home and uh, being online or isolating themselves, being online even without in public, mm -hmm. rather than gathering in public places and getting into trouble. So yeah. I do wonder what role social media had in affecting the, more globally the crime figures. But it was an interesting phenomenon that the... The, the crime statistics, the violent crime statistics, went down to such a low, uh, and, uh, and certainly, in, in our case, a lot of that was, I'm sure, done down to hard work uh, over a long period of time with the organisations like the Violent Reduction Unit mm -hmm. and things like that. But I don't think is you always have to be very careful about attributing it to a single solution because it's much more complex than that. And the problem with such low figures is, and I think this is what's happening in England and London in particular, uh, that, that when it's down at such a low, there's only one way for it to go, and that's back up. Uh -huh. and, and sooner or later it will go back up. So one of the frustrations for people who work in, area, in these areas that are affected by violence is that politicians are quick to claim the credit and sometimes you know the, the police organisations are quick to claim the credit for for that result but when it goes back up you know they then start you know lobbying for their own interests to get more money more funding more police in the street and this and that and the other rather than looking at the actual deep rooted social factors that contribute to it and develop long term strategies to solve those because they are predictable uh, and identifiable if you look at it like any kind of disease from mm -hmm. a public health medicine perspective. You can identify what's called antecedent factors that, that, that contribute to these things. And then you can develop strategies to, to, to solve that. And there's no, there's no easy quick fix because mm -hmm. the problems that contribute to it are very deep-rooted and inextricably linked with severe poverty deprivation, alcohol problems, drug problems, so gang culture, organised crime, you know, but, but, which really grow in, the, in that kind of environment. And unless you try to tackle those underlying problems, then you, you, you will not get any consistent or long-term results. Mm -hmm. And that's why all these high-profile knife amnesties and pictures of people displaying lots of knives. And I'm old enough to remember people like Frankie Vaughan coming to Glasgow to Easter House for you know, campaigns against violence, uh, particularly knives, in the late 60s and in 1972, and it was all over the newspapers. These are just a flash in the pan. And, uh, and then police would have knife amnesties and it would be all over the newspapers. Again, these are just... You know, they're good for the media, but they don't solve the problem. Yeah, well, this is why the VRU was so interesting to me and why I wanted to come up here and speak to John, and, and I'll talk about why I want to speak to you separately. But it, it was this... There was definitely a pattern 
like a change, a reduction in, in violence, yes. and 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 from that, a reduction in the number of murders and the murder rate, and you know, quite impressive numbers. And so I started looking into the details, the multi-agency multi-agency approach, treating it as a public health issue. You know, it's really interesting, especially yes. for me. You know, very close to London and seeing you know, the numbers going in the other direction nearly every day on the news there is another murder and it's yes. it's, it's getting out of hand. But <clears throat> the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically is that I was telling John I must have watched 20 documentaries. The most impactful part of any of them was an interview that you did where you were actually talking about the details of the injuries you dealt with, you know, and some of the misconceptions, you know, we're talking mm-hmm. about millimetres here, which we'll get yes. into the details, and also the photographs of some of the injuries, one specifically a machete injury, that had the biggest impact on me. And then what happened when I started looking into the VRU, part of the strategy was to go out and teach people. There were videos played to explain this to people. Yes. So as that had such an impact on me, I wanted to come and talk to you, you know, no holes barred, talk about your career, the, the different types of injuries you've dealt with and some of the misconceptions about knife crime because I, I'm guessing if it impacts me, it will impact other people. Yes. And, you know, but but I... So they've got like like a, a lot lot of questions about about this, but I'm going to start with a, a quote from you. When I say start, we're 25 minutes in, but so I'm taking this from the documentary. But you said, over the years, I've come to the conclusion that most people who carry knives and use knives do not see beyond the next six inches or the next 10 minutes. They don't seem to understand the consequences, and I that's quite a powerful statement. And it was to me for a couple of reasons but primarily it's because i can't i can't understand how someone can be so angry have and have so little consideration for the harm they might do to somebody else but also not really comprehending the impact it has on their lives because i'm pretty sure that anyone who has stabbed and seriously injured or killed somebody lives with a demon that will never leave them and I also think that anybody, if you speak to anyone who's in jail for murder, I'm pretty sure everyone will say they regret what they did. So in my mind, the combination of understanding the work that you do, but the testimonies of impact to both victims and perpetrators, I feel is a very strong message that you can get out there. Well, I, I agree that uh, to what you've just said, uh, I over the years, I, I have seen so many victims of violence, both blunt and penetrating violence. I, it's not just knives and stabbings mm-hmm. and things, but also severe blunt, blunt violence, you know, beatings and uh, assaults. But I have pondered this problem for many, many years because to me it was self-evident that uh, how serious it was. Or, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned... Sticking an, a knife or a sharp instrument into anybody's body, anywhere in their body, is a potentially lethal act. You have to look at the act itself, i.e. the mechanism of injury, rather than the outcome, because if you look over the years at the way people have viewed these things and the way the courts view them, which has often been very naive and simplistic, the outcome is what determines the seriousness of what they've done. Whereas the message I was trying to get across to people, no, it's the act of sticking a sharp instrument like a knife or a sword or a bit hitting somebody with a machete into somebody's body. That is a, a lethal act. If that victim survives it, 
that is no thanks to you. You you haven't gone and studied anatomy and decided to avoid all the vital structures that you could harm that will kill the person. So you have to recognise that the act itself is a lethal one and the, and the, what separates a killer or a murderer from somebody that has committed a common assault can often be a matter of a few millimetres. And, and, and the, the courts, in my experience, have not viewed it in that way in the past. The police haven't viewed it that way in the past and the public and the media haven't viewed it in that way. So if you take that then, if you then take that back to people who carry a knife and then and justify it by trying to say, I carry it for my own defence, then those people are much more likely to end up killing somebody or giving somebody a permanent injury that can change their lives or being a victim themselves than if they did not carry a knife. It's like Americans and guns. Americans try to justify the carrying and use of guns as, as a defensive thing, but you are much more likely to be killed in America, to be shot and killed if you own a gun than if you don't own a gun. And, you know, there's a lot of fallacies in these arguments that are put across to justify this type of behaviour. People are at much greater risk if they carry a knife and they're also much greater risk of, of killing somebody or inflicting a very serious injury if they have a knife on them. Because if they don't have a knife on them and something happens, they're not going to pull it out, defend themselves and stab someone to death. Because I think a lot of people who carry knives go out saying to myself, well, I need it for my protection. They don't go out with the intent... Most of them don't go out with the intention of killing somebody. But very often that's what happens at the end of the day. But they didn't start off with that in mind. And even when they do it, they don't necessarily see that uh, as an outcome. And if they do, they seem to think that, well, it was justifiable because I was defending myself. And that is not justifiable because it is excessive force, is beyond what is reasonable in order to, to defend yourself. The best way you can defend yourself, the first line of defence when you're faced with a potentially violent situation is run away. Well, that's where we come down to masculinity becoming a problem because, you know, when I've been in prep, I've been watching as many actual altercations as I can, incidents of altercations. And, I mean, you know, I'm seeing the extreme versions on YouTube, etc. But, you know, being a man, knowing what men are like, it's like... There are very few situations where men just kind of back down and say, look, look, you know, can we talk about this? Let's deal with it. It's, it there's a lot of uh, fronting which is going yes. on. And, you know, I, I'm imagining the scenario. I mean, I see our interviews where people say, well, the adrenaline's rushing. They've got a knife. I've got a knife. And I don't think people are really thinking through. Again, we come back to the consequences. Yes. They're not seeing beyond the six inches or the ten minutes. That, that's exactly right. They don't see beyond that. And, and unfortunately, I think it's something that's inherent in the genetic makeup of men. Mm -hmm. and, and it's partly due to hormones, which include testosterone, that... that, that you know, if you give people testosterone, it makes them more aggressive yep. than than uh, you know if they uh, if they have low or no testosterone, uh, and and all other hormones like adrenaline as well, which which causes the fight or flight syndrome. You know, adrenaline is secreted in a rush, and and it prepares you either to fight, uh, to protect yourself, or for whatever reason, or to run away. 
So and it's called fight or flight, and, mm -hmm. and it's a well recognised. So so you men are driven by their hormones in these situations, and and that puts rational thought, it pushes that away, and they react instinctively. And, and, and I think they, they don't actually foresee the consequences in lots of cases. I mean, just a few days ago, I was giving evidence in a, in a murder trial, a expert a medical evidence in a murder trial, where it involved exactly that, a, a, a person in, in a fit of anger and rage, partly hormonal, inflicted injuries on someone that resulted in his death. And, and so it's not just in relation to knife crime, it happens in other situations, but it's particularly so in knife crime because it's so easy to kill somebody. People seem to think that if you... You know, there are myths out there uh, about, you know, well, if you use a short blade, you're less likely to kill somebody, or if you stab them in the buttocks or, you know, in the backside, uh, then you're not going to inflict a fatal injury. But, you know, I've studied anatomy and I know there's a venous plexus deep in the buttock that if you get, you can get horrific bleeding then that you, you can exsanguinate. I've seen people have been stabbed in the buttock where it's gone through into their pelvis and skewered their rectum and uh, deep in their pelvis, uh, causing life-threatening hemorrhage. So people don't know they can do these things, and some people don't care. Don't get me wrong, there are some psychopaths out there. Of course, but are, are you... But, Going back to your previous point, saying the difference between therefore murder and attempted murder is a lot can be a lottery. Uh, yes, it is, and uh, obviously there are legal d definitions, and I'm not a lawyer, but there are legal definitions mm -hmm. about murder. And manslaughter. Uh, and man uh, yes, uh, it's manslaughter in England. In Scotland, it's culpable homicide. Okay, interesting. Culpable homicide means that you're responsible for the person's death, but you essentially you didn't intend. Uh, to, to have a fatal outcome or to kill him. I think for murder, you have to have premeditation or mm -hmm. intent to kill, or alternatively, your actions are such a degree of criminal recklessness that that you have disregarded, you know, the, the person's life and, you know, it was foreseeable that what you were doing could kill them. So, but but you'd have to speak to a lawyer yeah. about that. But that's roughly yeah. uh, how, how it is... Uh, but in terms of the actual, in the heat of the moment, if you're involved in a fight or a confrontation and you use a knife, then you're, the vast majority of people I've seen with, with knife injuries, with stab injuries, did not have life-threatening injuries. But a lot of them do, um, you know, and it's hard to say you know, what the percentage is. But as I said, it, it's purely arbitrary uh, as to whether or not you hit uh, a vital structure. There are certain areas that to surgeons, uh, you, you know, we often call them tiger country. You know, the neck is one of them. Yes. You know, you've got major blood vessels uh, in, in the neck that are very easy to injure with a knife and, and they carry a very high mortality if you, you, uh, in, you stab somebody in the neck, for example. Uh, but also places like the groin, or, or where there are big arteries, big veins, relatively close to the surface, uh, or, or the heart. It's very easy to stab someone in the heart. And in, and in my experience, if you look at uh, uh, the, the, the people we see, the, the majority of people who die from stab wounds have been stabbed in the chest, 
and you know 90% of those have been stabbed in the heart often by a right-handed assailant you know on the left side of the chest yeah. um, that's inflicted a wound in the heart which has killed them. I'm going to ask you some more detail about the actual injuries you've dealt with and you know the what is the the procedure but just before before we get to that how how many years did you spend as a surgeon? Well I, I qualified as a doctor in 1978, so I so practiced. Well, there you, yeah, go. you go. Yeah, so I, I practiced medicine for 38 years. Okay, and uh, I, and as soon as I'd finished my basic training, I, I started my surgical training, mm-hmm. and 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 undertook my surgical training and spent a number of years doing uh, working. Uh, in, in training as a surgeon, and then I specialised in accident and emergency medicine and surgery uh, because I realised that that kind of really frontline acute stuff was the, the, the thing that drew me most. The, the thing I liked about surgery most was emergency surgery, and uh, um, you know, I, I, I did get a bit fed up uh, when I was doing general surgery, doing outpatient clinics, seeing hordes of patients who were constipated. And, and I won't go into the gory details no. of some of the things we were having to do, but, but I found the emergency side of surgery the most uh, challenging and uh, satisfying. So I, so I then specialised in accidents and emergency uh, where you're right at the front door and, and a lot of people that you're dealing with, you have to act immediately, uh, often with very limited no, uh, you know, information or, or resources. And sometimes that can make the difference between life and death. So, and when when you first move into that area, are you shadowing a more experienced surgeon? When you know, and how long are you doing that before you're thrown in the deep end and leading something? Well, well, medical training has changed a lot over the years, and it's far better now than it was uh, in my day, which wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. But you know. So, so things are very different today now in general, if you look at m- medical training as a whole, because the, the principles are the same, no matter whether it's surgery, medicine, or specific branches of surgery. But in my day, you, when you qualified and as a junior doctor, you, you were thrown in at the deep end uh, you know, to a degree. And, and when you started your surgical training, you, you always have supervision by more senior staff, uh, you know, by experienced registrars, by consultants. But in those days, consultants were actually much more remote. They spent most of their time doing very specialist and complex stuff that consultants do. And and there is there was this misnomer in, in medicine where people are called a junior doctor, but you could be 10, 12, 15 years right. qualified and experienced, but technically, you were classed as a junior doctor because because the only senior doctor position was a consultant. So you had this kind of hierarchy. Uh, but but you're basically th- you were thrown in at the deep end. There was this philosophy of see one, do one, teach one. So for example, you know you're qualified. You assist a registrar or or a consultant to do an appendectomy to take an appendix out. And then you're left to do them yourself after that. And, yeah. and you get a lot of your experience on the job, just the way any other apprentices you would be trained in, in any other craft or, or, or trade. You know, once you develop you know, some tra- basic training to do something, 
you, you, you're then left to do some of that unsupervised and then, you know, there are various stages that you can move up and, and your skill levels can take, it's not just a single line, you can take leaps and bounds in, in what you can do or cannot do, you know, when you get certain mm -hmm. levels of skill. But, but, but you always had somebody more senior that you could call on if required. Um, but I remember the very first uh, appendicectomy I had to do on my own in the middle of the night. An, an emergency. As an emergency, as a very junior doctor. And, and, and to be honest, it was quite terrifying because the, the irony is, is that, that you're often take, doing these things with minimal support with other staff that don't have the same level of training or expertise as the routine daytime staff. Uh, the, the, these th things become much more difficult and challenging when you're doing them in the middle of the night on your own than if you're doing the same procedure during the day on an elective theatre list with a full range of staff available, a full range of surgical instruments available right. and all of that kind of thing. So what seems like a simple operation can be much, much more difficult in those circumstances. Well, I've got a question there. Yeah, so with, okay. with an emergency appendicitis case, is it still routine, though? Or, you know, is the operation to deal with it routine or is it different each case, each time someone comes in? Well, part of your responsibilities of a surgeon is, well, you never know what seems like a routine case can um, turn out to be a complex case. So many, many cases are routine and straightforward. Most appendicectomies are straightforward. Mm -hmm. Appendicitis is, is still the commonest surgical emergency in the UK, but, but there are still you know, something like 200, 250 deaths a year from appendicitis. And people don't realise that. No, I don't. But, 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 but then there are thousands and thousands of you know, people who get appendicitis. So the mortality rate's very, very low. But people tend to be blasé. But, but all of these procedures are invasive and they're inherently dangerous and carry risk. And even though the risk is very, very small and it's very safe now for most of these procedures, that risk never goes away. And that's one of the challenges in surgery in general and in medicine in general. Uh, people always expect perfect outcomes. But, yeah. but, but you know, it's a, medicine is, is not a pure science. There is an art to it as well as a science. It's not a pure science that's totally predictable, like chemistry, physics, you know, astronomy, that kind of thing, where there are hard and fast rules that are very predictable and that things always act in a certain way. So there's a lot of biological variation and a lot of other factors that, that can make what seems a simple, straightforward operation difficult. For example, um, when I was further on in my career, I was supervising junior doctors who uh, were going through the same kind of thing I'd gone through. And, and, and there was one doctor in particular, I remember, who had come from abroad to train. And the first time I left him on his own to take an appendix out, and I was on call at home, and he uh, was in the hospital and he took this patient to theatre to take his appendix out. And then in the middle of the night, I got a phone call from him to say, I can't find the appendix. <laughs> so, so I then had to go in, take over the operation, 
and I discovered why he couldn't find the appendix. Had it been out before? No, no, it hadn't been out before. <laughs> it was there. He just was in completely the wrong place. And I, right, again, okay. I won't go into the details because yeah. it won't make any sense. But he eventually turned out to be a pretty good surgeon. Right. But, but he, at the time, he just got it totally wrong. Or sometimes you see somebody, particularly women, diagnosis in women, Appendicitis, for example, is a clinical diagnosis, say, you know, mostly. It still is today. There's no single test that can positively diagnose it or rule it out uh, in every case. And uh, uh, so, and, and women diagnosing abdominal, surgical abdominal conditions is more complicated because they've got more things that, that, that can cause problems. So, for example, you might see a woman that you think has got appendicitis, you take them to theatre and then it turns out to be an ovarian cyst okay. or, 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 you know, some other pathology that, that, that's not anything to do with that. Men are a bit more straightforward in that respect because they right. don't have these extra bits. Uh, the, re the reason I asked is about the routine nature of something like this because, you know, moving on and dealing with, you know, knife uh, injuries, and I'm assuming f you dealt with firearm injuries as well. But I have, yeah. pr Primarily knife injuries that, that very few injuries are the same. You could be dealing with uh, a deep wound, different parts of the body. Yes. You can be dealing with uh, multiple injuries at the same time. That's exactly right. And what, I guess the, the question I was going to ask is that there must be a certain amount of improvising in certain situations and also against a racing clock because someone's life is at risk. So... The, the, I guess the question I really wanted to ask is that like, experience must be very, very important in this area. Well, experience is very important. But an experience uh, you don't really want to get as well. well yeah, <laughs> ab absolutely. No, experience is very important. And, and the, the, the first and most important lesson uh, is to have a high index of sus suspicion for a serious injury because they don't always appear serious okay. at the beginning. And uh, so you have to appreciate the the, po the possibility of an occult serious injury there. and uh, But you also have to have the surgical experience and skill to be able to deal with what you can find, what you find when you go in. Because you, you don't know, uh, as you have rightly said, that it can be a complex thing. Somebody gets stabbed in the belly and, and what you find is, for example, that the several loops of intestine have been skewered and, and so there's holes in intestine and intestinal fluid or sometimes faeces is leaked out into the abdominal cavity. And, and that, that can be dealt with and that's often not immediately life-threatening in terms of seconds count, but you might have minutes or hours uh, and that kind of thing. But, but it, it's sometimes easy to miss it. So, for example, somebody comes in with a stab wound in their, in their abdomen, in their belly, and you examine them and from a surgeon's point of view, you say, well... They don't have any signs of peritonitis or anything like that, and they're, they're, they're medically, hemodynamically stable, then we'll just watch them and so forth. Uh, but, but then they go on over a period of time to develop signs that shows us a more serious injury there. Uh, but nowadays, there's a lot more use of investigations such as ultrasounds and CT scans, but in the earlier days, you, it was mostly clinical serial observations examining the patient repeatedly over a period of time, looking for the signs of them developing, you know, a, a problem that indicates that there's been a deeper injury. Because one of the big pitfalls for is doctors who are not used to seeing lots of stab wounds, seeing somebody, and then they look at it and they explore it locally and they say, oh, well, it hasn't penetrated, so stitch it up and send them out. 
when in fact it actually has penetrated okay. and these people can come back a few hours later with peritonitis. What's peritonitis? It, well, it, it's where you have a fluid or, and or bacteria getting into the abdominal cavity, Okay. what people loosely call the stomach, but the stomach is an organ, that, and the abdominal cavity contains lots of organs, including the stomach. Uh, and, and it's what you get, for example, if you have appendicitis, if, if it progresses and it's not treated, you, you get generalised inflammation of the abdominal cavity, which is called the peritoneal cavity, because it's lined by this film called peritoneum. Right, and that's okay. peritonitis. Peritonitis is a surgical emergency, and it's life-threatening if it's not treated. So looking back at your career, before we just go into the yeah. details, can you remember a specific kind of period of time when you started to realise, I am starting to deal with a lot more uh, knife crime injuries and more severe injuries? Is there a period of time? Yes, um, Yes, that, that, that was interesting. Obviously, I, I was born and brought up in this part of the world. I did most of my training in this part of the world. So what we were doing was just normal. The first time I really realised there, there was a problem was I got a job in Aberdeen uh, for a few years and I went up there and I thought to myself, you know, and, and I loved Aberdeen and I loved the experience and I loved working there. Uh, but but when I moved up there, it was the first time I'd really moved away from the west of Scotland and, uh, and I thought, something funny about this place, I can't quite put my finger on it. And then I realised that it was because I had been there for six months and I hadn't seen a single patient who'd been stabbed. Right. I, I saw farmers who'd get serious injuries from bulls and 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 other serious injuries. I saw lots of serious, very serious and often fatal, multiple injuries from high-speed car crashes. You know the so-called boy racers on country mm -hmm. roads and that kind of thing. There was lots of trauma, and there was violence, but not to the same extent that I saw in my previous posts, and certainly very little in the way of penetrating injury, i.e. stabbings. And and that's what, what first raised my awareness that, wait a minute, what we were doing there isn't the same everywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and that's when I became interested in that. So when I came back to Glasgow, I then was focused on that. And and by this time, I, and having you know done a bit of reading and research and looking around different places, I realised that this was a specific problem uh, in our area. And the other thing that gave me a clue, and I should have picked up on it earlier, was uh, you, we got doctors from all over the UK and from abroad coming and working in our departments, and they would always comment on these types of injuries because they'd never seen it, or it was very rare in places that they had come from. So, so it was that combination of things that made me realise there was a specific problem in this part of the world. Well, so there's another doctor or surgeon in London, Martin Griffiths, who's appeared in a lot of yeah. documentaries as well. And I noted what he said. He said he's dealing with more severe injuries, more injuries per person, and both the victim and the assailants are younger. Yeah. He said that's a pattern he noticed. Did you notice a similar pattern? Yes, uh, unfortunately, we we noticed it twenty years before, or wow. twenty five years before, uh, and and I'm hearing things that I was saying in the nineteen nineties, not just me, but other colleagues, but particularly myself, because I, once I had become aware of this problem, I started trying to 
you know, raise awareness or do something about it. And, and, and that, that was very difficult. So, so that, that's absolutely right. The, wh one of the, fr the frustrations we've had uh, over the years is uh, th this was very common in our part of the world. It was a lot less common elsewhere, but, but whenever it happened in England, it was all over the newspapers, but over here, it barely got a mention, or, or up here, I should say. It barely got a mention in the media, or if it did, it was just in the local press. And it was uh, a more severe problem up here? It was a much more severe problem. We had the second highest homicide rate in the Western world in young men between the ages of 15 and 24. You know, I found some data for the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta. Uh, in fact, it was 1989 data that, that, that published international variations in homicide rates in young men between the ages of 15 and 24, and we were second top of that. Was f I saw it at five by, about 5 by 100,000, round about. Uh, well, uh, in those days, that, in 1989, it, it was much higher than oh, that. Oh, really? OK. Uh, because I, I remember this graph vividly because I used it in, in lots of presentations. And, and you know, th there was a list of about 35 countries or something like that, you know, uh, and number one at the very top of the list, the highest homicide rate was the USA, and they were way streets, miles ahead of everyone else, and that was because of the guns. Uh -huh. And 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 the bottom of the list was Japan, which was apparently the safest country in the world. We're talking about advanced countries, not third world or developing mm -hmm. or Eastern Europe, or, you know, that sort of thing. But but it was the very bottom of the list, and their rate at that time was about five per hundred thousand. Uh, but second top was Scotland, and I can't remember what the actual right. rate was, but it was much, much higher. That's and England and Wales, at, in that particular graph, was a bit in the middle. You know, it was about 17 or 18. It might have been a different time per 100,000. But, but I think what's happened is th the, the rate has fallen. It's a lot lower now yeah. than it was then. I mean, there is all this emphasis in the, 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 the stabbings in London, and, and it's absolutely true because the rate's going back up. But it's going up from a rate that was a 44-year low, and it's going back up. And even today, it's not as high as it was 15 years ago. Yeah, well, that's... But, 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 but it is becoming more of a problem, and it's being focused. But it's still not as high as it was in the past, yeah. when there was a lot less uh, awareness of it. Well, one of the things John said in an interview was that, you know, Scotland isn't solved, and... It's, it's not solved. And the rate is still double that of London. Yeah, well, exactly, because it's a rate per 100,000 population, mm -hmm. and for a relatively <coughs> small country, our rates are very, very high. Our homicide yeah. rates are high. There has always been, having grown up in this part of the world, even from my youth, I was, there was always low levels of violence, uh, you know, very prevalent. I mean, I remember being assaulted as a schoolboy uh, just at random uh, by people, we called them Neds, uh, you know, non-educated delinquents <laughs> who would just attack you at random. And, you know, violence was very prevalent and a lot of it was low-level assaults, blunt assaults, but there also was significant knife crime. And so, so throughout my youth, you know, I've been aware of violence in this part of the world and you live with a degree of fear um, mm -hmm. about that, uh, that, that you, can, you can be attacked at random. And young men were particularly at risk. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the macho yep. nature, the confrontational Which uh, is a universal nature. problem. It's a universal problem. But, but this went on a lot. I mean, my own son at the age of 15 
was assaulted where we live at random by a group of young guys who were standing in a street corner as he walked past. Okay. And uh, so it hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Scotland hasn't solved the problem, but I'm absolutely convinced that the way to look at these problems, there is no quick fix, there's no magic solution, and forget the sound bites and the arguments for more resources and things like that. Uh, you have to look at the underlying problems. As far as I'm concerned, and this is my own personal opinion, the, the, that a lot of the problems with the violence in uh, London and elsewhere uh, is the result of years of government funding being removed for uh, activities and social things for young people, support, you know, the... the, the the, the the kind of things that that, that you know, I'm not saying youth clubs, but you know all mm-hmm. of that kind of basic societal things that that help people to be part of a community in a community and, and keep young people out of trouble and off the streets. You know, a lot of funding has been withdrawn from so many areas, and welfare has been drawn from so many areas, and it's inextricably linked with the gang culture, and that's a particular problem we had. People don't really realise that that uh, we had far more gangs in the Glasgow area and the west of Scotland, and the gang gang culture was right here. We we had double the amount of gangs than the, than there were in London, but but the current violence, a lot of it is gang related in London. A lot of the gang, a lot of the violence that we encountered, was related to the gang culture. Uh, but in those days, a lot of that gang culture was really just tribal about I was say, coming from different, different areas. The other big thing we had was organised crime mm-hmm. uh, to do, particularly to do with drugs. And uh, we saw lots of violence due to organised crime, and but that tended to be gangsters shooting and stabbing and drilling holes in people's heads, Jesus. things like that. You know, in other words, wars between gangs for you know turf wars. So, so I have dealt with people who've been shot, and again. In relative terms, although we, you know, it's nothing in comparison to what happens in the states. We at, at that time we had, relatively speaking, quite a, a you know, a number of homicides and non-fatal shootings uh, from people that were related to organised crime. So that kind of level tended to be. I mean, I, I you know, I can remember specific cases, you know, that that that, that have dealt with uh, over the years, and um, so. So there was those two elements, but 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 the gang culture here was endemic, uh, and it tended to be very young people, even from my earliest days as a as a junior doctor. And I remember working in what was called casualty at that time, and I remember getting this fifteen year old boy in who had had a slash wound right across the middle of his forehead, and he was a, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, he was a, a bit of a skinny runt. You know, he looked like a runt of the litter, and I was amazed that that this young lad. You know, was getting involved into viol- in violent situations, and I spoke to him, and he was a part of a gang, and this was a gang fight, and these were people were carrying knives and weapons and things, and and you know, and I gave gave him a talking to, as I thought, about you know what's likely to happen if we were to carry on like that, and you know, I sewed him up, sent him away. And two weeks later, I got him back in and he had a stab wound on the right side of his back in the right loin, as I said, in, in what people would, might really call the kidney area. And when I and, and I could see surgically he had an acute abdomen uh, and had to go to theatre. Uh, but when I x-rayed his abdomen, 
and you always do two views. You do a front back view and a side view. And, and in the front back view, I could see this little, you know, say about an inch long, thin, you know, density that, that was clearly a piece of metal. But when I looked at the side view, it was a blade of a bread knife. Jesus. And, and it had been stabbed and it was full length of the bread knife had gone into his, from his back, into his belly. It had almost come out the other side and the handle had broken off. So it just looked as if he had a wee cut in his back. But here he's got this huge bread knife you know, well, it, it, people listening won't be able to see, but you've measured probably, what, yeah, 10 inches? About, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 10, 12 inches uh, in his abdomen. And it was literally, the point of it was literally just under the skin on, on, on the front of his belly. It had gone in through the back and it had actually nicked his gallbladder. So we took his gallbladder out, took that out, and he was very lucky that he, it missed other serious things and he made a good recovery. But that's the, the type of thing. And that must be pretty ferocious for a, for a handle to come off. And, and one of the things uh, you said is that, okay, you've, we're going to get into the detail a bit now, but you've seen every kind of knife injury. Over yeah, the years. Yes, yeah. yes, I, I think so, that's fair. So I, I kind of want to put myself into the accident emergency, someone's yep. coming in, you know, obviously a range of injuries that yes. you've dealt with, but... If somebody's coming in, what are the what are the serious injuries that people are coming with in that where you've got an immediate concern where there's a race against time, or is it every injury like you said because it can be a small one and you've just got no idea? No, no, no. It's not that degree of intensity is, isn't in every case, but but when they come in at first, we are very vigilant and very concerned that the potent, that this person may have an occult life threatening injury. Okay. So until you assess them, and and you maybe do some simple investigations, you don't really know. So they may appear okay when they when they come in and then suddenly deteriorate, or they may not be... The ones we worry about most are the ones that, that have got clear signs of a problem when they come in and uh, and they're deteriorating. You don't know exactly what's what, and, and that's when people need their chest opened or their belly opened or Ex something, something like that. Exploratory surgery. I mean, the, by far and away, the, the, the largest number are people who have, have been stabbed in the chest. Uh, I, I remember one man who came in and uh, who, who, who was initially brought in as um, an epileptic seizure. So this man came in, he was unconscious, he was blue, uh, which, which is medical, it's called cyanosis, and that's due to severe lack of oxygen in the blood, which means that you're going to get brain damage, your other organs are going to be damaged, and if you don't do something about it, PDQ, you, you know, you're going to die. And, 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 the, and the ambulance crew brought this man in, and they had found him in a lift in, in a business centre, and um, he... He, as I said, they got the call as somebody having a seizure. And, and when he came in, the, the, the ambulance, I can't remember if he was a paramedic at that time or not, because uh, when they started, a paramedic or technician came in and he said, look, there's something funny about this guy. He said, I don't know what it is, but we got him as a seizure. But I noticed he had this little cut in, 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 in his chest, in his shirt. He had a wee hole in his shirt, he had a wee bit of blood, and he literally just had a little cut in his skin that looked like a few millimetres. And he said, so I just threw him in the back of the ambulance and brought him straight in, because it was literally a few minutes from mm -hmm. our department. And this man was unconscious and was clearly an extremist. And what had happened was that he... 
he, he was working uh, in this business centre and he saw someone th outside breaking into cars and he went down and challenged the chap and was taking him back up in the lift to call the police when this person stabbed him with a screwdriver. Right. And this was a stab wound with a screwdriver. So as you can imagine a small screwdriver, yep. and that's all it was. The, the, I've seen many dead people with what looked like totally insignificant cuts on their skin. And the other side of the coin is you get you, you see many people with horrific-looking injuries, but they're not life-threatening. So, But this particular man, what happened was that he uh, this had gone through his chest and into the region of his heart and where the, the huge vessels you know, go into and come out of the heart and, and it punctured his pulmonary artery, which is the big artery in the heart that takes blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs. And he had a, a condition called a cardiac tamponade, which is what kills a lot of these people, uh, where the, the blood leaks out into the sac that surrounds the heart and it compresses the heart and the heart can't fill up and it can't beat and they die. And and in a way, that's the ideal kind of situation that, 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 that you can resolve very quickly because you can cut open, you have to open up the chest, cut open the pericardium, take out the blood clot and, and this man just had a small hole in his pulmonary artery and a single stitch sorted that. Right. And and he survived. And you replaced the lost blood? Oh, yes. I mean, you have okay. to... You have to the, the thing about these th patients is you have to... Or any patient with serious or life-threatening injuries, you have to assess and treat simultaneously. Mm -hmm. You can't do it in, sequen in, a, in sequence. Let's say, let, let's send them for a scan. Let's do this. Let's do that. Wait till they get back. You actually have to intervene. So you're resuscitating them with blood and fluids whilst you're doing this and you're looking for what the damage is and, ho and hopefully it's something relatively simple that you can sort. If somebody has got a, a through-and-through stab wound to the heart, for example, with internal damage and damage to the valves, then you're just, you know... No, no surviving that. Well, not really. Not unless you've got a, you know, a specialist cardiac surgeon right to hand who... A, and cardiopulmonary bypass facilities who can deal deal with it immediately. And there have been one or, you know, a small number of cases like that where people have had internal damages, a damage where they have survived that. But if you don't have that immediately available in the resuscitation room, you know, when you come in, it's extremely unlikely because you'll survive Because there's just that. too much work to do. Yes, it's too complex mm -hmm. and, and the patient's in extremis. Often by the time you get them in, the worst thing the ambulance services can do with, with patients like that is muck about in the street. They need to, you know, they need to get them into hospital as soon as possible, unless there's a medical team there that can do a thoracotomy, for example, to relieve something simple. But if it's complex like that, even a medical team out at the scene will not be able to salvage How much the time person. do they tend to have for that kind of injury? Oh, that, that's very difficult. Of course, because uh, there's a range but, of injuries. But, but, but Because there is a range of injuries. And I've seen people with the cardiac tamponades, for example, that, you know, you, you can divide them into the ones that rapidly 
develop it and die and don't get to hospital. And then you get people in who come in and you, they're clearly unwell and you may have an hour or two. And if you recognise that that's a potential problem and you may have time to get them to the operating theatre. And then you have the third group that come in and they're obviously in extremists. They're still alive, but they're in extremists and you've got to intervene straight away. So there is that kind of spectrum. If you have time to get them to the operating theatre, and do things there, then you can have much more control over things and you've got there's much more expertise and equipment available okay. for you to deal with things. But in these situations, what you're looking for is something that you can deal with, relieve the problem immediately and get control of it. Or, you know, and, and so stab wounds in the neck, for example, are, you know, it can be very, very difficult in that respect because people exsanguinate very quickly and, and it requires a lot of specialist skill to, to be able to deal with them. Right. And can the heart fully recover? Yes. Or, oh, yes, yes. But are there any long... Do you have to have long-term checkups? Yeah, you can, well, you can have... Uh, you, well, a lot of people just have a simple... You know, in medical terms, uh, just have a single stab wound in one of the chambers that, that's caused a hole, but the everything else is OK. And you can stitch that up. And, and that's the best case scenario. You can stitch that up and they can make a full recovery. And they don't need long-term follow-up usually or have long-term problems. If they have more complex injuries or particularly internal injuries, then that's a, a different matter altogether. And they may, may need further treatment or, uh, or further surgical procedures like valve replacements or something like that that can change their lives. But, but a lot of them, it's just, as, as I said specifically, there's this... You know, pericardial tamponade condition which you want to recognise and deal with properly uh, deal with immediately uh, and they can make a full recovery if you if it's done timelessly if you get the patient in in time that's why wasting time out in the street mm -hmm. is, is only putting the, 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 the casualty's life at risk you know, it, there's well documented uh, papers in the medical literature particularly from the states that, that show that uh, if you have, say, a penetrating injury or severe occult bleeding from an injury like that, that, that your chances of survival are better if even if a policeman throws you into the back of a vehicle and drives you straight to hospital right. than if a paramedic crew attend you because they tend to you know, put up drips, try to treat this and treat that and treat the other, by which time you've bled to death or, or your heart's stopped. Right, so outside of injuries to the heart and those which affect major vessels, yeah. which all is yeah. related to the flow of yes. blood, obviously, yes. and oxygen, what are the other injuries which can lead to death? I'm, I mean, I'll make an obvious assumption. One into the brain is obviously very severe. Well, if you get penetrating injuries to the brain, they're usually fatal, uh -huh. uh, or, or, or certainly if they survive, they can have serious disabilities. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are patients, for example, who often get stabbed in the back, uh, or not who often, it's not a huge number, but, but if you, someone who's been stabbed in the back or stabbed in the back of the neck and it severs a spinal cord, and they end up paralysed for life. Uh -huh. And and also, I mean, much more commonly in chest injuries, the, the common thing is that you get stabbed in the chest and, and you get a laceration in your lung and that causes the lung to collapse and the chest to fill with air and that's called a pneumothorax and there's a condition called a tension pneumothorax where the tension builds up, it's a, the lung is, is air leaks out into the chest, the lung collapses and, and there's pressure in that side of the chest builds up, it pushes the heart and the, the lung 
uh, on the other side and compresses them and, and that's life-threatening if, okay. if it's not treated. And that's relatively easily treated by putting in a chest drain and, and relieving that tension. And that, you know, that's life-threatening. But the common, much more common things are pneumothoraces and things that are potentially life-threatening but are relatively straightforward to treat. But other things, yeah, penetrating injuries to the head are very bad. You know, I, I, I once saw a, a man who was shot uh, in the forehead just there uh, with a .22 gun and, and you know, caused extensive damage to his brain and he was in intensive care, died 40 hours later. And, um, you know, and, and, and of course, one of the complications is that you get huge amounts of swelling and the pressure inside the head rises. That kills the brain if it's not dead already. And, and you could see this brain being squeezed out, like squeezing toothpaste out through this, this hole. Oh, gosh. You know, whilst he was in the process of dying. Well, so when my sister was knocked down by a police car, she landed on her head and she was put in an, an induced coma for a week yes. to stop the swelling. That's, exa yes, that's exactly damage. right. And that's a blunt force injury. Yeah. And you get what's called cerebral edema. And it's particularly more likely to happen uh, to children and young people or people with a severe blunt, adults with a severe blunt force to the head. Uh, and, and, and that's what you have to do. You have to control the ventilation and the blood flow uh, and the blood pressure and all of that sort of thing and try and, and reduce that. And there's other treatments you can give. And sometimes, depending on the severity of the injury, sometimes despite your best efforts, that will you, you will not manage it. But other times you will with variable degrees of recovery. I remember uh, seeing a woman who'd been knocked down by a car on a motorway uh, and she came in with multiple injuries, uh, including a very severe brain injury. And, and whilst we operated uh, on her other injuries, we managed to get the neurosurgeons to, to come and they operated on her head, removed a piece of her skull to relieve the, the swelling because she had this acute cerebral edema and her brain just bulged, you know, became even more grossly swollen, just bulged right out and, you know, and, and it wasn't survivable and she died. So... It can be treatable depending on the severity, but yes, so it's very it's very dangerous injuries to the brain. So outside of the life-threatening injuries, talk to me a little bit about the life-changing injuries, the kind of ones yes. you would regularly see. Now, obviously, yes. you've talked about you know severing of the spinal cord, yeah. which can lead yes, to par paralysis, probably from yes. neck down or waist down. Yeah, yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, depending on the level which it occurs. What else? Uh, uh, but well, lots of injuries can be life-changing, for example. I suppose one of the commonest ones are things that were very common in our area, which was slash wounds. You, you get slashed in the face. That has severe social and psychological consequences yep. for the rest of your life. It can affect your job prospects, your marriage prospects. People look at you and assume that you're a violent person. And also, it also makes you at greater risk of being attacked again by somebody else because they think, oh, he's a hard man and I'm going to show that I'm a harder man. And, you know, so, so it, it can have... These things have much greater life-changing consequences than people realise. And they also have very severe psychological consequences for many people. You know, such scarring uh, to their face that they see every day when they look in the mirror. Um. Another thing, I just want to reiterate the point and go back to it, that uh, one of the things that Martin Griffiths talked about is that he'd seen people die from cuts to the calf. Again, you said to the buttock. Uh, yeah. It can be to the hand or the arm. Yeah. He said he's seen a range of things. And I, I just want you to reiterate to the point that 
there is no safe place there to is, stab someone. There, there is no safe place in the body to stab one uh, to stab a person because you you, you particularly if the if the stab wound is deep, you can access arteries or veins that 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 you find difficult to control. You know, and particularly likes of the thigh, for example, you've got big, big vessels in the thigh and a big perforating veins in the thigh, and and if you if you cut any of those in a in a stab wound, uh, and muscles are very fleshy and get lots of big blood vessels, so you can exsanguinate, you can bleed out. How quick? Like what's the kind well, of range? Well, it can be minutes. It, it can, can be, be minutes. It can it can be minutes uh, because you can't get control of it. And, and particularly if it's in what we call junctional zones, so the, the, the junction between the leg and the trunk, for example, so, you know, and, and I'm talking about places like the groin, you've got big arteries and veins there, and if you get a stab wound in the groin, you can exsanguinate in, within a few minutes. No it's, time it's for It's a bit like the neck. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, and it's also very difficult to control the bleeding by direct pressure because... It's not easily accessible. I mean, many years ago, when I was a medical student, I was taught about you know the the butcher's injury, and butchers used to wear leather aprons because when they were boning meat with a boning knife, and a boning knife is long and thin, and incredibly sharp and pointed, and and they would do the boning with a knife like that going toward their body, and sometimes it would slip, and they'd stab themselves in the groin and they would bleed to death. Many, many years ago, those were the only types of injuries like that we right. see. But we've seen this from people who have been stabbed. I did see a butcher with a, who, who, who uh, sustained this injury. This was many years ago, uh, who, who close to our hospital, and he was brought in, and he unfortunately died from that. But, but these things are a lot less common now amongst butchers because they're aware of these injuries. They should bone away from them, and they also should wear protective clothing when they're doing that so that if, if they do slip they're not going to impale themselves and they're growing with it but but people with knives who go up and stab somebody in the buttock or stab somebody in the groin or stab somebody in in the thigh uh, or if you get you know there are arteries i saw there was a, a 16 year old boy bled to death from a stab wound in his armpit where he was stabbed with a screwdriver and of course you you know the, the main arteries to the to the arm come you know from your from your neck in your chest, down into, through your armpit, and along with the nerves, into the arm. So if you get any of these things, and these can be very inaccessible. I, I saw another young lad who died from a stab wound, which was essentially in the root of the neck. You know, the knife went in just behind his collarbone, at the base of the neck, and and it caught the, the main artery that goes from from the aorta down into his arm and it was in such an inaccessible place that despite doing a clamshell thoracotomy to open up his chest like uh -huh. like a shell you couldn't get in and access to the vessel to stop the bleeding and and he bled to death and, and I actually have a, a photographs of that slides of that uh, in your presentation uh, uh, yeah yeah uh, but it's pretty gruesome and, uh, you know, too gruesome to show in most situations. Well, maybe people need to see it. Um, well, I firmly believed that for a long time. That was why, when I became aware of this problem, one of the things I was keen on doing was trying to get the message across to people of the reality of what these things are. Well, smoking's a public health issue, and we've seen some pretty gruesome things on the TV yes. in advertising. Yes, that, that's correct. And uh, 
so you know, I think there is a place for it, but but I, I do think that, as I said, there's no quick fix because underlying all these things are the deep-rooted societal issues that, that need to yeah. be sorted. And and the other thing about uh, I I got. You know, I felt that it should be treated like a disease. I remember saying, you know, to the media many years ago that, you know, that 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 if this was a disease such as if HIV or AIDS, as it was as it was at the time, uh, people were dying of AIDS, and I've seen if these people were coming in and dying of AIDS in these numbers, there would be a public outcry. Of course, uh, but because it's violence, you know, everybody just. Accepts it, and also it tends to be from what would maybe be considered an underclass where people have well, less consideration for them. Well, indeed, I mean, I regarded it as a disease, disease that predominantly affected young men, and and it had a high morbidity and a high mortality. Morbidity meaning life changing mm -hmm. things, and mortality, you know, the uh, death. And I just what made me look at it as a public health problem and as a disease process was in, in the late 1980s, I, I went to America and visited some trauma centres there and uh, to look at how they manage trauma generally. And of course, you know, gun violence is a huge problem in America. They have 30,000 deaths a year. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in America, more Americans have died from gun violence in America than in all the wars put together that America's ever been involved in in its history, and yet they're still wedded to their guns. You know, when you look at it that way, there's all this emphasis on terrorism. The number of Americans that are killed by terrorism are minuscule by comparison. You're and, fighting the Constitution here, though. Well, of course you are. Well, yeah, but, but, but the original Constitution didn't have guns in it. The Constitution was amended. It was a Second Amendment. Yeah. To the right to bear arms, and it's I, a different art, a different weapons these and, days, and, and it's very different weapons these days. And I assume that the, that right to bear arms was to do with when the country is threatened by a foreign invader, but they take it as an individual right to bear arms. But if it was amended once, it can be amended again. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've covered, I've covered uh, U.S. gun crime. Sorry, not just gun crime, but um, yeah. the, the guns in the U.S. before, and it is itself a, a complicated issue. Probably not for now. No, no, not for I, now, it does, I could it, talk about that for yeah, a while, but I wouldn't talk about it now. But it does lead me to another question, just last, last thing on injuries, but what are the what are the different complications you deal with with machete injuries and also firearm injuries from stab victims? Because yeah. I saw a machete injury, it was the worst-looking one, Yeah, but it, it felt like it was just a, a stitch up. Well, uh, yes, these things often are, uh, uh, and, and that's the thing. They look graphic... Mm -hmm. and, they, and they look really bad, so that they make good footage or good media things. But uh, often, if no vital structures are, are involved, it's a matter of just repairing the damage, and you and you do that in layers and that sort of thing. And it, although some of these injuries can result in permanent disability, you know, uh -huh. if you get nerve uh, severed nerves that that supply your hand, for example, then you can have permanent loss of function in that hand that might affect your ability to do things it might affect your ability even for your own personal care in some ways okay. you know so so that, you know in that respect it can be life changing and some people can end up with deformities and things so so the machetes machetes were very popular in our part of the world uh, swords uh, you know we used to see lots of sword injuries 
but but often the most graphic injuries are, are not the life-threatening ones. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I've got lots of images of people who, I mean, I've, I've managed multiple machete injuries to his head and his scalp, and he's got these huge Jesus. things, one, one in the back of his neck that was right down to bone. But we were able to stitch all those up without any problem. It didn't threaten his life. He didn't have any skull fractures or brain injuries, and, and it hadn't hit any huge things. So it, it just takes time and work and effort. So... What about with firearms? How do firearms Fi come Firearms are different because the energy levels are much greater, therefore the, the potential for damage uh, and destruction is far, far greater. And certainly, I mean, I suppose personally I've seen maybe, uh, it's hard to say, but, but certainly double figures, maybe 50 to 60 over the years, including fatal shootings. Most of these were to do with organised crime, and uh, some people shot with homemade bullets. Um, I mean, it was said that you could you could hire a, a gun and you know bullets in Glasgow quite cheaply, and 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 you could also get heroin more easily. You could get a, a loaf of bread and a pint of milk uh, any any time of the day or night. You know you can get these things. So 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 that you know there the, there was an availability there. So relatively speaking, we saw quite a lot. But gunshots are a different ball game altogether because the, the bullets, when they go enter the body, it's, it's all got to do with the energy that's involved, you know, because it's a, a you, you get high velocity and low velocity missiles. Uh, low velocity missiles tend to cause damage in the path of the, 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 the trajectory that the, the bullet travels. Uh, so whatever it comes into contact with, it damages. So it might break bones, it might, damage tissues and vessels and things like that. But if you miss major structures, you know, you, you'll survive that. A high velocity missiles are much higher energy levels and as well as the damage that it causes as it passes through, you get more widespread damage due to the shock wave effects that spread out further away from the site of the injury. So you get cavitation that sucks in you know, debris and muck and clothing, uh, and you also get ripping, tearing and destruction of tissues that, that it doesn't come into direct contact with, and then these are very, very serious. The other interesting things about bullets is, is they can go all sorts of places. Like I saw one man who was shot in the abdomen, and, you know, we x-rayed his abdomen, couldn't see the bullet, and then we discovered it in his scrotum. So, so it had gone round, it had gone in this side, it travelled, like, tumbled and echoed round his belly, and then duck lodged in a scrotum. There was another one. Is there a lot of injuries en route? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the path that it travels yeah. you know, causes damage. There was another man I saw who was shot in the, the, the back of the chest, eh, on the right side of his chest, and at the time he was shot, and this happened in the early hours of the morning when he was leaving home, it was between 7 and 7.30, and he... He, he was being targeted and somebody with a gun and he was running away and I think he bent forward so he bent down and uh, and was shot in the back uh, and uh, unfortunately he died but but the the, the bullet tra travelled up through through his lung and up through his chest and it came out and it was lying under the skin and, and his left shoulder over the deltoid muscle so so you, it's very unpredictable the extent of the damage and the the exact damage that occurs, so it's a different ball game altogether. Right. You know. So. So you've dealt a lot. <laughs> let's be honest. You've dealt with a lot here over the years. <clears throat> How does it affect you 
personally, and I mean, I, I assume you build a resilience, but I'm I'm assuming a lot lives with you as well. Oh yes, a lot does live with you. At the end of the day, you're trained to do what you can, and you. I don't think anybody really appreciates, and it's not just violence, but it's other aspects of medicine, just what it's like for doctors dealing with very horrific things. And uh, if you, you have to learn to have a degree of professional detachment, because if you don't, the job will destroy you. Of course. And uh, so you do develop a kind of carapace, a degree of professional detachment. Everybody has to develop their own coping mechanisms. But certainly the way I... One of the ways I did it was, and and I think a lot of my colleagues, is what drives us is you're actually focused on trying to do your best for that person in front of you and to make them better. So that's your priority. So whilst you're doing that, that is what sustains you and enables you to do what you do. But when you go away from that, then you also have your own thoughts and feelings. And when you when you have to go and deal with the relatives, that, yeah. that is incredibly difficult because you know what it's going to be like and what's going to happen and how devastating it could be. Uh, and, well, that's and the other thing because, again, it's you know there are injuries, there are deaths, there are you know long-term implications for people both being injured and the same yes. spending time in prison. But there's also there's like the 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 effect that has on all the people connected to that person, family, friends. Absolutely, you know, yes, yes. You know, this and, is wide reaching. Yeah. And some of our you know some of that darkest moments are you know in the middle of the night when you're on your own, the things are always seem at their bleakest. And even to this day, you know, you can still you know have things that, that come in, and you know that, that, that that's the most difficult time. But at the time with the the casualty in front of you, you're focused on doing what you're doing because you're trying to help them. And that enables you to do things that a lot of people would find pretty horrible. But 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 you know that it has to be done if you are going to help that person. So, and as a surgeon in particular, you have to train yourself to do that. You know, uh, surgeons love to operate, although, ironically, most surgeons in the UK spend the majority of their time not operating, but that's a whole other issue but 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 that's when you feel at your best because you're trained and you're in control and 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 if you get into trouble you're also trained and experienced enough to get yourself out of trouble at least a good surgeon should be and, uh, and i guess there's the other positive side side where there's you know this lives you've saved yeah yes there are some yeah you, working at and you tend not to get a lot of feedback or good feedback you only get negative feedback but 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 very occasionally you do get grateful patients you know because a lot of these patients when they come into us are, are in extremists in one form or another and the, their immediate knowledge or recollection of what's happening to them is very vague or they may uh-huh. be non-existent but then as they go through the process and they end up spending time in wards and then they leave they remember those bits of it uh, but um, I, a lot of the time I rationalised the violence side of things and, and other aspects of the job as I, I, I jokingly refer to it as a, a cross between missionary work and veterinary medicine most of the time. Uh, but but that's a, a gallows humour type of thing. Yeah. It's one of the coping mechanisms. 
Uh, but it's so extreme in general that uh, you have to find some way of dealing with that. And to be honest, the older I got, I think the harder it become. It became. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I found myself uh, not in term necessarily in terms of violence, but in other situations, finding myself getting upset visibly in a way that I never did when I was younger. Well, I'm going to quote you again because I saw you also say that you were driven to despair on the frequency and the prevalence of what you were starting to deal with, and that's why I asked you Absolutely. if it started to impact you because. Well, yeah. Oh yes, it did. It did. But what sustained me through most of that was. Was 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 trying to do something about it, trying to help, and that's why prevention is better than cure. Yeah. And I I got this. I, I realized I started earlier telling you about going to America, but but that's where I got this concept of treating injuries as a disease uh-huh. and as a public health pro- problem. I, I was sitting in the trauma center in Washington D.C. talking to the chief of surgery. And we had long discussions, and I talked to him about gun violence, and he was telling me about their lobbying congress and things like that, and about their approach to about treating injuries due to violence in general as this kind of issue. So, and, and that was in 1988, and that's where I get this idea when I came back, is we need to look at this as a disease, not as a legal process or a criminal process, but as a disease process, and take a public health populations-based approach to it, look at the factors that contribute to it and try to address those factors. And this is where the Violence Reduction Unit came into its own because it was founded in 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, And and I may be wrong, but I think I was one of the first people that came to round about that time because I remember meeting with John Carnahan and uh, Karen McCluskey, who was the intelligence analyst at that time, and we had various discussions. And because a lot of time, when I, when I was doing this, I spent a lot of time trying to be make the police aware, amongst others, that, that they were only seeing a fraction of you know, the cases that we were actually dealing with. Because people because weren't reporting of, Because they weren't yeah. being reported. And, and you're doing a bit of research and reading around the subject. You know, I came to realise that up to three quarters of the cases that we were dealing with, the police knew nothing of. In fact, there was one one year I was uh, on duty over Christmas and New Year, and I came home um, round about the 5th of January or whatever it was. It was just after the end of the New Year, Christmas, New Year period, and the Scottish news was on, and I won't say who the newsreader was because it'll give away my age, but, <laughs> but, but she, she said that Strathclyde Police, and of course Strathclyde Police at that time covered a huge area, uh-huh. a, a, a huge area of the west of Scotland, heading up towards you know the Highlands and, and down a bit. And, and this newscaster said, uh, Strathclyde Police reported that there were 18 knife crimes, 18 stabbing incidents in the two-week period over the Christmas and New Year. And I thought to myself, well, I've just spent two weeks on duty in the Royal Infirmary, uh, so the next day I went in and I went into the resuscitation room and I will have a logbook in the resuscitation room where every patient that goes through is registered, logged in a rough outline of what the problem is. And I counted the number of stabbings we'd had over that same two-week period. And in my hospital alone, in, in my department, we saw 33 patients. Was there no duty, though, for the hospital to report everything to the police? No, there is no duty. 
and there shouldn't be a duty to report it to the police because... I, and, and some people have suggested that, and the GMC, you know, not so, so long ago came out with guidance about reporting stab wounds to, to the police and things like that. But there are serious ethical issues surrounding that, but not least that if you do that, you will drive people away and you will prevent people from seeking help and they will get worse care. So, uh, but our duty of confidentiality should not extend to that. And, and we, we up, we've never had a legal obligation to do that. Because, and I think it would be counterproductive to do so. But what we did do was we I spoke to the, with the likes of John and Karen and we agreed to collect data, anonymised uh-huh. data, and share that with them so that we could identify the prevalence and the areas that they could plot it and see where the hotspots were and also see the actual numbers. And when they checked with their official records and reported crimes, they realised that it was being grossly underreported, but they were also able to identify particular pockets where it was much more common. And so, but, but we, and, and they then were able to develop strategies and they had resources to be able to address those issues, which then helped reduce those violent incidents that were occurring. And some, sometimes it was very simple things that they could do, like making sure there were enough taxis to get people home when the clubs came out because a lot of fights broke out in taxi queues when people under the influence of alcohol and drugs were queuing up and waiting an hour for a taxi and then a taxi arrived and, you know, scuffles and various serious fights would break out. So they were able to do that. But to go back to that figure of 33, that was only my hospital alone. And in that time in Glasgow, we had five adult hospitals, all of whom would have had other stabbings and assaults. Uh, and further afield in Lanarkshire, in Paisley, etc., etc. So if you added all that up, it was a huge underestimate of the actual prevalence of the problem. Wow. So... Um, I want to close out on a couple of questions now. Well, firstly, again, I've brought up Martin Griffiths a few times. It's his and your work that I've followed. But something he said, it'd be interesting to see your response to this, but I think I know what you're going to say. He said, just being a technician and sewing up people, if that is my career, then I have failed. I need to fix the problem. Uh, I'm, a, you know, I'm not even assuming. I know you feel the same because your work obviously went beyond just your work as a technician. Right, well, that's it. That's absolutely correct. And uh, because for years, that's what we did. We, we got these people in, we patched them up, we sent them out and we saw them back again. And it kept happening, kept happening. And then, as I said, it's, but, but you know, in those days, I thought everywhere was exactly the same. And it was only when I realised no, it's not, then we have to do something about it. And myself and a colleague who was a cardiothoracic surgeon wrote to the director of public health at the health board, uh, this was around about 2004, to ask them what data the health board had on this problem and what policies they had. And the reason we asked them that was because we knew they didn't have any. And, and you know, the, the director of public health eventually became the chief medical officer for Scotland and, and, and he was an ex-surgeon that I had worked with you know, in the past, who went into public health medicine for the same reasons that I was talking about, that you can do a lot more good by studying the populations and looking at the underlying issues and sorting them, that it's not always a medical solution that's required. It's more of social and political solution that's required to these things. Um, and uh, so, so you have to do more. You have to treat the whole patient. You have to treat the underlying problem or the underlying disease 
that that is contributing to uh, to to the condition. Other otherwise, you are just being a technician, and you know that's that's not what it's about. And I made myself very unpopular, I think, in some circles by trying to get these messages out, because there was a lot of denial that that went around about the problems. You know, Glasgow's a great city. It's a fantastic city. It's friendly. And, and I'd encourage anybody to come here and visit and holiday and explore the country. But in many respects, it was a tale of two cities. You know, there was this underbelly that most people didn't encounter, but it was very, very serious wow. uh, and had to be dealt with. I think the degree that outside is yes. he's, he's trying to say finish up. Okay, <laughs> just, just, just a final question. Um, obviously, a long career. You've seen a lot. You know, this, is, this has been actually really fascinating to hear about, and I think people be very interested but like how do you reflect on it all you know how do you look back what do you think about what's going on you know currently with crime here and uh, in the uk as well and you know are you hopeful and it just you know, just some closing comments would be interesting to hear well yes and no <laughs> i am hopeful but and and long may the reduction in the crime figures continue but but there are still serious problems that need to be solved and i'm afraid my anger and frustrations are directed more at the politicians and governments because they are the ones that are ultimately responsible for all this because of the decisions they make regarding funding and resources and looking after the welfare of people and giving people opportunities to break these cycles. And if you look at the last 10 years of austerity and the, the record of Conservative governments, my personal view is that Conservative governments have no social conscience or heart they neglect the weakest at the expense of the wealthiest so john said uh, yesterday i actually wrote down a wow statement he said the most corrosive gangs i've encountered are the gangs in politics health police and social work <laughs> well there you go and we haven't collaborated on this yeah but i'm absolutely right that's yeah. uh, that, that's these are the people i ultimately hold responsible and when the, you hear the home secretaries talking about well, stop and search or police funding or more police on the beat. Forget it. It's a waste of time. Those are not the issues. The issues are dealing with the underlying problems and with the funding and the infrastructure and the welfare in our society that prevents people getting into these situations in the first place. And if you look at the last 10 years of austerity and the effects that's had and you know, to to the poorest and the most vulnerable in our societies. The measure of a civilised society is how you look after your weak and your vulnerable and your poor. And that's where we are falling seriously short. That's a great place to end. And look, I really appreciate your time, Rudy. Um, it's a fascinating interview, really genuinely fascinating. I think we probably could have done about five hours. I've, I've got a lot I didn't ask you about, but I look forward to getting this out. I look forward to the feedback from people and... Uh, yeah, thank well, you, and enjoy your retirement. <laughs> well, well, thank you for, for asking me, and, and I'm not fully retired. I'm still doing some non-clinical work that, that ends, ends up giving evidence in court uh -huh. and f other crimes and things like that. But anyway, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to come along and talk about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Rudy. Perhaps enjoy is the wrong word. 
you know, I mean, I enjoyed it, but in a way, it, because I wanted to learn more about the impact that injuries had on people, you know, the range of injuries and how he dealt with them as a surgeon and the destructive impact, not just on the victims and not just on their families, but the perpetrators as well. The people haven't really thought about what they're doing. So, yes, that was... Uh, a very important interview for me to do and like I say enjoy might not be the right word but I, I do hope you get from it what I, I wanted to get from it you know knife crime in Scotland is still certainly an issue but some of the tactics used by the violence reduction unit have been incredibly successful and act as a case study that others can analyze and perhaps you know some of these can be adopted by London I don't know what's going on there I do want to find out more you know once I've got back from South America I'm going out to South America next month I'm going to be looking at London a lot more I'm going to be looking at the issues that London faces you know and comparing that to what happened in Scotland also in this interview you may hear me mention John Carconnan a few times John was an instrumental figure in setting up the violence reduction unit and I've also recorded a show with him which will come out next week as I said I'll also be spending a bit more time looking at some of the issues closer to London and any feedback if you've got any questions about this you do want to reach out to me my email address is peter at defiance.news also I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken the best place to buy Bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy sell and trade Bitcoin find out more at kraken.com also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show, follow the show on social media, or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.